At the end of August this year, Hurricane Harvey dumped about 1.2 metres of rain in some parts of the state of Texas. And this caused flooding that destroyed many homes and businesses and displaced more than 30,000 people. But some people were more prepared than others. But for what we're looking at this morning, the worldwide flood that God was going to send, something more radical than even the Aquadam was needed. And for that, God chose a man called Noah. And we're going to read the start of this, the account of the flood in the book of Genesis. And it's in chapter 6. And we're going to read from verse 9 down to the, the end of the chapter this morning as we think about uh, how Noah got prepared for the flood that was coming. So it's Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how the corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches at the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all the living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, every kind of animal and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored, store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. This, uh, the start of this passage introduces another section in the book of Genesis. This is the account of Noah. Remember, this is the little phrase that separates the book of Genesis into sections. But like many of the early chapters of Genesis, a lot of people just reject this as a myth, as a, as a myth from superstitious and ignorant people. Even some people who call themselves Christians claim that this is nothing more than a helpful legend. A legend that we can learn from, like a parable, like just a story, like a, just a moralistic tale. And of course we understand why some people find this very difficult to accept, very difficult to, to, to believe in. But as we've seen before in the book of Genesis, there is evidence 
to encourage us to believe that this worldwide flood was an actual historical event. That the early chapters of Genesis are not just a legend, they're not just a story, they're actually historical fact. Now, much of that kind of evidence is to do with fossils and rocks. Fossils of sea creatures that are found well high above sea level. You wonder, how did they get there? Or fossil graveyards with millions of highly preserved fossils in a single sediment layer. Pointing to a kind of catastrophic event that caused all of these fossils to be formed. Or there's evidence for rapid deposition of sediment layers across vast areas of this planet. As if something caused that sediment to to form in, in a large area of this world. Or the lack of erosion between those layers that indicate a continual deposition of one layer after another without any time for erosion or the breakup of those layers. If you want to learn more about that, there is lots and lots to learn about the evidence for the flood in, in fossils and in rocks. But I think there's another kind of evidence that maybe some, for, for many of us is more kind of readily accessible. Because it's recorded in about 270 different cultures right across this world that they have flood legends as part of their folklore. These come from scattered places like China or Australia or Tanzania, Scandinavia, Peru, Hawaii. They go beyond the time when Christians went there and told them the story of the Bible. And although the details of these legends are often a little bit diverse, they all seem to be telling a remarkably similar story. So the question is, how did all these different people groups from all over the world come up with exactly the similar kind of legend? Well, I think the logical conclusion is that all of these different people groups have descended from a few people who actually survived a global flood. And it points back to the historicity of what we've just read. But for us here this morning, there's another reason why we can be sure that Genesis 6, 7 and 8 and 9 are history. That this event actually happened. Because Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. Jesus was comparing the circumstances in the world uh, when when he will come back again with the circumstances in this world in Noah's day. And he clearly believed that that flood was a real event. And for me, If Jesus believed it was a real event, then I'm convinced that we should too. So I believe this is not a helpful legend. I don't believe that this is just a myth that we can take or and learn some valuable lesson from. I believe that this is history. And that we can learn from what happened all those years ago. 
that Noah was a real man. But Noah wasn't just a real man, he was also a righteous man. Verse 9, it says that. That means he was a good man. He was somebody who was morally innocent, who was upright in his life and his dealings with other people. When the prophet Ezekiel was describing a, a righteous man, he said, a righteous man does what is just and right. And that's not just avoiding wrong things, that's also doing good things. So Ezekiel goes on to describe things like this. He says, this righteous man does not commit a a robbery, but gives food to the hungry and provides clothes to the naked. He does not lend at usury or take excessive interest. He withholds his hand from doing wrong and judges fairly between man and man. So that's the kind of man Noah was. He avoided doing things that were wrong, but he also focused on doing what was good. And as a result, verse 9 also says that he was blameless among the people. People recognised that he was a man of integrity in his community. And I think, when you think of it, this is absolutely astounding considering the kind of culture that Noah grew up in. The world, the way the world was at the time that Noah was living. Verse 11 says this, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. It was full of violence for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. Remember we saw that last week? That Noah lived in a world that was wicked and corrupt and brutal and cruel. The people had rejected God's design for their lives and instead they just did whatever they wanted, no matter who it hurt. That was the world that Noah grew up in. But Noah refused to go with the flow. Noah refused just to follow the crowd. And so, when we recognise what Noah did, it really challenges us. That we can't use our culture or our society as an excuse for the sin in our lives. We can't say, well, I can't do anything else but do this because everybody else around me is doing it. We can't use that as an excuse. If Noah can live for God, in a world that's so bad that God is going to wipe it out. And so can we. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be simple. But we can stand for God, even in this world, as it goes further and further away from God's plan for their lives. But why did Noah live a good life? Why, did he, why was he upright? Why was he a man of integrity? Well, I think verse 9 tells us that. It says that like Enoch, his great-grandfather, Enoch walked, or Noah, sorry, walked with God. Noah walked with God. Noah wasn't just a good man, he was also a godly man. He lived in communion with God. He enjoyed friendship with God. And this wasn't just a kind of 
passing brief association. This wasn't just something that he kind of prayed to God now and again. Instead, this was an, a, a secure relationship that Noah had with God. He says in verse 18, or God says in verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you. This is the, the first mention in the Bible of this really important concept of covenant. As you go through the Bible, you're going to see this idea of covenant coming up again and again and again. We have God's covenant with Noah after the flood. We'll read that in chapter 9. Then you have God's covenant with Abraham. Then later on we'll have God's covenant with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai with Moses. Then you'll see God's covenant with King David. Then ultimately you'll see God's new covenant with those of us who have trusted in Jesus. What we've just celebrated this morning in taking this cup in part of our communion service when Jesus said, this is the cup that's of the, new, the cup of the new covenant in my blood. So covenant is a really, really important biblical concept. It's an agreement, a contract, a pledge of commitment between two parties. And here God promises to confirm his commitment to Noah. It shows that God has brought Noah into a special relationship with himself. One that is committed, one that is secure. But how is this possible? How is it possible for Noah to live in a covenant relationship with God? After all, none of us are good enough to be accepted by God just because of how good we, we try and live. Noah was a good man. Noah was an upright man. But even Noah was not good enough to live with God. As Romans chapter 3 reminds us, all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. So Noah was a sinner. Yes, he was a good man, but he was a sinner. So how could Noah be in a righteous relationship with God? And how could he walk with God? Well, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us. It says this, by faith, by his faith, Noah, was, Noah condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah was able to walk with God because he put his faith in God. Yes, Noah's faith changed how he lived. It changed his attitudes and his actions towards other people. But it was his faith that brought him into a relationship with God. It was his faith that saved him. It was his faith that made him stand righteous before God. And that's true for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Many of us will know this verse. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works. So that no one can boast. 
the only way that we can stand in relationship with God, the only way that we can walk in a covenant committed relationship with God is through faith in Jesus and through faith in his death on the cross. That's why we're here this morning, isn't it? Because we've been saved by faith. So Noah was a good man and Noah was a godly man. And because of this, God shared with him not only what God was going to do, but also what Noah had to do in order to be rescued. So look at verse 13 of Genesis chapter 6. I am going to put an end to all people. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Now, I know that some people try and make this more believable by saying, look, this wasn't a worldwide flood. This wasn't a flood that covered the whole earth. This was just a localized flood in Noah's area. And just because they didn't know about the rest of the world, they, didn't, they thought it covered the whole of the planet. But clearly God was saying that he was going to send a worldwide catastrophe here. Something that was going to wipe out every living creature. He says in verse 17, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. This is what God was going to do. These floodwaters were going to cover the entire planet and every living creature that lives on the land was going to die. But God had a rescue plan for Noah. Let's look at verse 14. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. I know what you think when you think when you when you read that verse. My immediate thought is why? Why would God ask Noah to do this? God could have rescued Noah and his family in a completely different way. Without Noah lifting even a finger. But instead, God asked Noah to build an ark. And the reason I think it is because he invited Noah into partnership with him. He invited Noah to be involved in this rescue plan, to build this boat. Not to be a passive passenger but to be an active participant in what God was doing in his rescue plan. And I believe that God still does the same. God still invites us into partnership with himself in his rescue plan. Paul says we are God's fellow workers. Isn't that a stunning phrase? To say you and I can work with God? Of course, God doesn't need us. God could reach out, reach out to the world with the gospel without you and I. God could draw men and women to faith in Christ without us getting involved. But in his grace and his wisdom, he invites us to work with him to accomplish his ultimate rescue plan of bringing people into faith in Christ and bringing God, them into his, his family. 
So we, like Noah, are, are invited into partnership with God. But we need to be clear about this. Yes, this was going to be a partnership, but it was going to be a partnership not of equals, because God was going to be in charge. Noah was not a weather watcher. He wasn't a climate change scientist who read the signs and saw that there was going to be a coming downpour. Neither was he just an inventive boat builder who just took initiative and came up with the idea or the design for an ark. The plan for this ark, its purpose, its substance, its dimensions, its structures, its occupants, all of that was given to Noah by God. Verse 15, God said to Noah, this is how you're to build it. This was God's design. This was God's plan. This was God's will. And Noah was invited to follow God's plan. Now today we can't be sure of what it looked like. Some people have imagined that that, this is something what it looked like at the top, the picture there. It had a roof, it had a door, it had three decks. The size was measured in cubits, which is the distance between your middle finger and your elbow, which approximates to something like 45 centimetres. So that's where the the, the dimensions come from, that the ark was probably 140 metres long, 23 metres wide, 13.5 metres high. The amazing thing is about the, these proportions is that it's exactly like a modern day cargo ship. The dimensions. And in 1993, a Korean study by a world class ship research team, they found that the proportions of this ark carefully balanced the conflicting demands of stability, comfort and strength. Their conclusion was, if you were going to design an ark that was going to do what it, was, what it had to do, then exactly that was, that was the proportions you would use. God knew what he was doing. I'm sure that's a big surprise to all of us. But why was it going to be so large? Why did Noah have to build such a huge boat? Well, of course, that was because God told Noah not just to take you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you, eight people, he was also told to take two of all the living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. This was going to be a rescue ship to preserve all human and animal life. Now when it comes to this point, again, a lot of people would ridicule this. They claim that it's impossible for Noah to have collected two of all of the 1.4 million species that have been discovered on, on this planet. But that's not what Noah was told to do. If you read it carefully. Look at the next verse. Verse 20. Two of every kind of bird, every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. So Noah's job was to care for flying creatures and air-living, air-breathing land animals. And God said that he was going to bring two 
of each of these kind of animals with him to Noah to be, to be into the ark. So Noah didn't have to go out searching for them. God was going to bring them to Noah. But also this idea of kind is not the same as species. God didn't say you have to bring every, two of every species, but two of every kind. And that takes us back to Genesis chapter 1, in verse 24. Remember we read how God created living creatures according to their kinds? Remember we emphasised that whole idea of the God made things to be according to their kinds? And how we thought that that doesn't necessarily just mean the animals that we see around today. Because through selective breeding, these different kinds of animals can produce amazing diversity. Remember we thought about dogs and all of the dog breeds you can get today. How they all come from the same parent. Dogs. But kinds are distinct from each other. Each kind of animal will only reproduce the same kind. So Noah had to take each kind of animal on board. So what does that mean? Does it mean species? Well, a lot of people, Christians who are scientists, don't think so. Some say the next taxonomy level, I don't know if you remember this from your science class, which is genera. Or even some say the next one, which is the family group. Okay, so they propose, for example, that all the members of the cat family, they're all connected, they're all relatives, they could all have descended through selective breeding from one set of cat parents that were on board the ark. And so if that's true, I know it, just now it's just, a, it's just research, it's just a, 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 an assumption, I guess. But if that's true, then in order to preserve all of the living species that we have on the planet today, Noah would only have had to have something like a thousand pairs of animals on board the ark. All different sizes, all different shapes, but we'd only need a thousand different kinds of animals on board. But whether you're interested in that kind of stuff or not, this is the most important thing, I think, here. When Noah was given all of these detailed instructions, did you notice his response? Verse 22. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Noah listened to these commands and he obeyed. And he did this despite the incredible barriers and challenges that they were to doing this. For example, Noah did this even though he hadn't seen any of this before. Verse 7 of Hebrews 11 says that Noah was warned about things not yet seen. When Noah started to build, he had never seen a worldwide flood before. He'd never seen God judge the world in such a way ever before. He couldn't even see signs that this flood was coming. He couldn't look at the sky and say, oh, look, look at the clouds. They're gathering. They're going to be a real downpour. There was none of that. There was nothing that Noah could see. He was also the only one who was building an ark. For Noah to obey, he had to go completely alone. He had to stand out from the crowd. He had to do something that nobody else was doing. And that's tough. 
The Bible doesn't tell us what his neighbours thought about this building project. But I think most of us could imagine what they would be saying. How they would be thinking. How they think that Noah's just completely lost it. That he's gone crazy. He's mad. See what Noah's doing up the road? Can you imagine it? Also took a long time for Noah to do this. The Bible doesn't say exactly how long it took. But it does say that Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came. He was 500 when, he started, when his, his sons were, were born. So it's somewhere between in that 100 year period. And from what I've seen, it's relatively easy for us to start to follow God's commands. It's much, much, much harder to keep obeying God's commands. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, or in Noah's case, probably decade after decade. That's much more challenging for us. It's also exceptionally costly. It must have cost Noah... A huge amount in terms of money, energy, resources. It would make really demand on everything that he was and everything that he had. And I think we forget that for Noah, it would probably seem just as impossible to him as it was it does to us. How would God flood the whole earth? How would Noah be able to get all of these animals on board? How would he make sure that they were all looked after and they wouldn't kill each other? How would he and his family survive on a boat with thousands of animals all around them? And I think the list just of barriers and challenges to this just goes on and on and on. And yet despite all of these challenges, Noah obeyed. Noah did everything that the Lord told him to do. Why? Well, we go to Hebrews 11 again and it says this. By faith. When Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. Noah obeyed because he had faith in God. He took God at his word and he believed in God's promises and he did what God told him to do just because it was God who told him to do it. And that's the challenge facing each one of us today. The Bible declares that God has a plan and a purpose for us in our lives. God wants us to follow him. Not just do what we want, or not just do, does, do what makes sense to us. But he calls us to a life of obedience that comes from faith. So like Noah, we are called to obey his commands, even though we can't see everything that God is doing. Paul says we live by faith, not by sight. We're called to stand for God, even though at times no one else is doing it. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Paul challenges us. We're called to go against the flow of our society. We're called to keep on going for God, even though it takes a long time. Again, in Galatians chapter 6, Paul says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we, if we don't give up. 
We're called to keep on serving God year after year, decade after decade. We're called to serve God, even though it costs us everything that we are and have. Again, Paul in Romans 12 says, In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. God is asking for everything. He calls us to follow God, even although his promises at times can sound impossible. We're called to believe that with God, nothing is impossible. So the question for us today, folks, is what are we going to do? Are we going to follow the majority of people in this world as they just do what seems right in their own eyes? As they just follow what it feels, what it feels right? Just do what everyone else is doing and head unknowingly to judgment and disaster and destruction? Or are we going to follow in the footsteps of Noah? A man who in faith lived a righteous life and built an ark that saved his family simply because God told him to do it. My prayer is that each one of us will fulfill God's plan for our lives in this generation through the obedience that comes from God.